0: I'm a terrible artist, like terrible, just awful. Cannot draw a stick figure to save my life. And at school, I remember art class was just the absolute worst for me. Unless I was able to make uh, paper mache balls and like throw them around, I just wasn't interested. It just isn't something that God has blessed me with. But what I do remember from art class is also uh, in year 10, I had an a, a Eastern European art teacher. And because I love words, I remember something she just said over and over again about the French painter called Paul Cézanne. And she would go, Cézanne, Cézanne, simplify, simplify. I'm really sorry it's a bad accent, but that's how I remember it. Simplify, simplify. And it always just stuck in my mind and and... and I'm not an artist, and all I can really remember about Cézanne is that he would take objects and just reduce them down to their most basic shapes, whether it was like a square or a cylinder. If you're an art lover and I've butchered that, I'm really, really sorry. But this idea of simplification makes me think about uh, the gospel and what is the simple gospel. Right now, if I said you had 10 seconds to tell someone what the gospel is and how it impacts your life, what would you say? What would you try and get out in those 10 seconds? And it makes me think about the church and the church gathering. What is really essential? What is the bare essentials that we need for a church gathering? What's super important? What is necessary and, and what is superfluous? What if we just layered on top? You know, one of the most memorable examples of church and church in action that I've ever seen was uh, when Gabrielle and I were in India a few years ago uh, visiting some missionaries and some pastors. We were on holiday, and we went to visit um, a slum church in Delhi. And this church, uh, their, their sole objective, their sole aim was to minister to the poorest of the poor. This church was filled with rag pickers and beggars people with HIV, prostitutes, widows, orphans, people who are at the very bottom rung of India's car system. And I remember we were crammed into this tiny room on a really hot day, hard concrete floor, not much else around, there was no AC, and uh, I'm like sitting there with my knees up around my ears, cursing my lack of flexibility, and we were there for six hours six hours of worship and of teaching and of, there was a puppet show for the kids halfway through. But what I remember the most is the joy in that room. I remember the faces. I remember looking around at these people in desperate situations. They had every reason to be unhappy and to be miserable, but there was joy. There was joy in that room. There was joy in those faces because these people had grasped the gospel. They grasped the gospel and that church was led by the most incredible man in his family who just poured their lives out in preaching the gospel but in also meeting material needs. They would have a church service and then after the service they would ration out oil and flour and rice to all the widows, the people who had nothing to last them another week. They'd then spend their week educating, again preaching the gospel and then taking people to go and get immunizations, taking people to go and get eye surgery and encouraging people with healthcare and meeting all these amazing needs. It was just a beautiful, beautiful picture of the church in action. You know, the church always thrives when its focus is out and when its focus is up, when its focus is on mission, when the church looks out upon the needs of the world and and spends its energy, spends its time, its resources trying to make a difference for people's eternity, but also for people's lives here and now. And it's because Christianity isn't mainstream. It isn't mainstream. It is a spiritual insurgency. Christianity goes against the grain of culture. It swims upstream. The church sours and decays when it spends its time looking in. When, it focuses, when, it, when, when Christians, when a church brings its attention in on itself and it starts to argue and bicker about its preferences and its comfort, it doesn't go well. The church's focus is always mission, out, not in. And as we bring our Jesus the Early Years series to a close today, we end with what I hope is just a super clear presentation of the simple gospel, the reason Jesus came. We've spent the last five sermons looking at Jesus' early years in the Gospel of Luke. We've looked at uh, his humility, how he was a learner. We learned about repentance from John the Baptist. Uh, We learned about Jesus' identity. And last week, uh, the battle with Satan uh, in the wilderness. And this week, we tie it all together with mission. With mission. You know, we come to this every single week here at the street. Our focus is on Christ and Christ alone. It's on sharing the gospel and then helping people become total followers of Jesus Christ because otherwise we're just wasting your time and we're wasting our time if all we do is put on some nice music and we do an inspirational TED Talk and let you go home without changing anything. There is enough content in the world. There are enough podcasts for you to, to achieve inner happiness. You go into a bookstore, there are enough books on self help for you, how to, how to make your own identity, and, and just there is content galore out there. And what we are not doing as the church is creating new ideas. We're not peddling something new, we're sharing and proclaiming ancient wisdom that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came in the flesh, who died on the cross for your sin and for my sin, and it is only through him that your life will be transformed and this world will be changed. This is the gospel, and this is the beating heart of the church, and it is the only hope for a tired and weary world, a world at breaking point, and it very much feels like it at the moment, doesn't it? And so my goal today is hopefully a fresh appeal to you Christian, to rediscover the fire of the gospel and our mission during our short time here on earth. And for you, non-Christian, person who doesn't yet know Jesus, I hope that today you will know him and that you will experience life like you've never known it before. Father, I pray that you would minister now through these words as I Do my best, Lord, empowered by your spirit to proclaim your gospel. I pray you'd give us ears to hear, hearts to listen. Holy Spirit, move and have your way, I pray. I thank you for this privilege of being able to share your words. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, go to Luke 4, uh, 14. Um, And while it reads like it's right off the back of Jesus testing in the wilderness, uh, it's actually most likely that this is sometime, maybe a year afterwards, given how this story is paralleled in other Gospels. Have a look at Mark 6, for instance. It reads, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. As was his custom. I want to pause there. As was his custom. As was his habit. As was his rhythm of life. We see something similar in Luke 5.16, where it says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. If we're talking about simplicity, here are Jesus' two basic, his two atomic habits. Prayer and gathering, prayer and gathering. We speak a lot about prayer at the street. If you want to look at some awesome sermons, jump online and check the archives. But what we don't really talk about a lot is church attendance, (laughs) why it's so important to gather with the saints on a regular basis. Jesus made a point of going to his place of worship every Sabbath, every Sabbath. Luke says it was his custom it was his habit, a simple yet consistent part of his life. If you were looking for Jesus on Sabbath, you'd go to the synagogue without question. If someone was looking for you on a Sunday, where would they look? Where would they find you? Would they know where you would be? You know, I think my heart, as I've been pondering this, I've felt burdened for so many of you who just haven't made gathering with the saints regularly part of your custom. It isn't a rhythm for you. You haven't made it a priority in your life. It was a priority for the King of Kings, but not so for some of us. I think some might think you can just go it alone. It's fine, I read the Bible, I pray, I'm all good. You haven't made it a habit. I think for some of you, for some of us, maybe because of the disruption of the past couple of years, you've just forgotten. You've just forgotten. You've got used to sitting at home and, in your lounge or in your pyjamas and you feel like you're getting by okay, but you've forgotten the joy and the wonder and the encouragement and the power of being in a room with other people who love the person that you love the most and sing and listen to His Word and pray. You have just forgotten. Let me encourage you to come back. Let me encourage you to gather. There is power and there is joy when the saints get together. How many of you just disappear on Sundays for whatever reason? Parents, how many of you disappear for chunks at a time because of your children's sport? Is it really that important to you that you would miss so often the church gathering for one more game? For one more game. Hebrews ten twenty four says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as summer and the habit, there's that word, habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This isn't a legalistic church attendance. You've got to be there 52 weeks of the year sort of thing. I'm not, I'm not pushing that. I'm not pushing that because you can turn up to church every single Sunday and not leave changed. An effective Sunday impacts your Monday. What I am asking you is to ask yourself, have I made it my rhythm. How important is it to me to gather with the saints? It was Jesus' habit. Is it mine? It was something simple for Jesus. Is it simple for me? If we look back in the text, we go, Jesus is in the synagogue. He's done his traveling around and he comes to Nazareth and he stands up to teach. He's recognized as a traveling rabbi. He has that responsibility, the responsibility, that honor of teaching. The attendant hands him the scroll of Isaiah and he unrolls it and then he begins to read what for us would be Isaiah 61 and part of Isaiah 58. And it reads, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I love the way that Luke tells stories. So often he has these wonderful little details in there. He really paints a picture for us of, of sort of the, the, um, the theatrics of Jesus reaching out for the scroll and unrolling it and finding the very place he wanted to read and then he finishes reading. He rolls it up. He hands it back to the attendant and he sits down and he pauses. And Luke said, the eyes of everyone are fastened on him. You can just imagine people just leaning in thinking, what is he going to say Next. And what does he say? He says, this prophecy, this prophecy from Isaiah written 700 years ago is fulfilled right here and right now. And you are listening to it. The Savior, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who would come and change the world. He's here. You're looking at him. This is such an incredible, incredible moment and what a blessing and a privilege for those people who were there to hear it. You know, it makes me think about these YouTube videos that I kind of still enjoy watching from time to time. Uh, I don't know if you've seen them when uh, people from the military have been away and they come back and surprise their families and someone's got a little hidden camera set up. Often they go and surprise you know the wife or the mom or the daughter. And that moment when the person's expecting them to come home at some point but they're caught by surprise. They turn around and there's tears and there's joy and I feel like I'm a mess every time I do it so well. But that moment of ecstasy, something you've been waiting for has been revealed and Jesus says, here I am. And it's the, the, the wonder about it is that this is where Jesus reveals his mission. Right at the outset and he says four things. There's four things that Isaiah proclaimed the Messiah would do and Jesus says, I'm going to do them. Proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. And we just see that time and again throughout Jesus' ministry. We see it as he healed physical maladies. He raised the dead. He spoke against oppression and injustice. And he especially honored women in a society where they were squashed, where they just weren't valued. Jesus turned things on their head we also see the dual nature of his purpose and it's really important that that comes out clearly in this text. He was promising that he would bring physical renewal and spiritual renewal. He came to bring good news to the material poor, to those who are materially poor and those who are spiritually poor, to proclaim freedom for those stuck in physical slavery and also those who are stuck in slavery to sin. He came to open the eyes of the blind people whose physical eyes were darkened he came to open eyes who've been blinded by sin. He came to set the oppressed free, those who are in chains. And he came to liberate those who are in bondage to Satan. And sometimes we can fall into equal and opposite errors if we raise one up against the other, if we say, no, Jesus only, his main mission was to come and help people physically. That was the main thing he came, so we should be about good works and renewing the planet and, and just taking care of people here and now. And the opposite error is to go, well, he only cared about people's spiritual sides. And so it doesn't matter about meeting physical needs. It doesn't matter about the planet. It doesn't matter about the poor. Those are two equal and opposite eras. Jesus came for both. And his mission was both. And our mission is both. And this is what he asks us to do now. And this is what is referred to when he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour that phrase the year of the lord's favor is actually referring to uh, the jewish the jewish the jewish I'm battling with that word the jewish celebration of the year of jubilee in leviticus 25 8 to 55 this was a phenomenal year in the jewish calendar every 50th year was like a year off a year of generosity a year where all debts were canceled no matter how much you owed someone the debt was gone a year where, if you'd bought and sold property, in that year, the property would be returned to the original owner. Everything was reset. It was a year where no one would did work. They wouldn't harvest. The Lord it would bless their harvest in the previous years so if they had enough food. The 50th year was a wonderful year. It was called the year of the Lord's favor. The American theologian Ray Ortland said this Jubilee year is a foreshadowing of Christ who would usher in this year or this period of favour, of the Lord's favour, where the cross would cancel our debt to sin and where freedom would be proclaimed by Jesus and we could celebrate because sin and death have been defeated, our eternity is secure and so we can then live generous lives, open-handed, the favour of God is here and Christians are called to live it out and manifest it in the world. And this is where we're living now. We are living in the time of the Lord's favour. In the time of the Lord's favour. And we, and we manifest that through preaching the gospel and living it out in material ways. I love what Paul writes in Titus 2.14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do good works eager to do good works because we've been purified, because we've been saved, we are therefore free to go and meet the needs of the world. Do you see how the simplicity of the gospel works? We're free to live outward focused lives because our eternity is secure. This life isn't the only life we have and so we don't need to spend our time grabbing at possessions, trying to make money, trying to have all the pleasure we can have now. We don't need to worry about any of that because our eyes are fixed on eternity. We are freed from the burden of accumulation. We are freed from the pressure of consumerism because we're living for something more. And so we can live open-handed, generous lives to the benefit of others. We can give our lives away. And so we proclaim the gospel with our words. It is good news to those in spiritual chains, good news to the poor in spirit, blinded by Satan, held captive by sin. It is good news that Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, has defeated sin and can give you a new life. He can free you from guilt and shame if you'll let him. We proclaim it with our words and we proclaim it with our actions. James 4:18. show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. It is good news that God loves the world so much that he sends a church, he sends a people to go out and bring healing and freedom to hurting and suffering people. This is good news physically. And so Christians, we must be known for our love for the poor. We must be. You've heard the appeal today of, uh, and recently of getting involved with CAP. CAP is such an important mission for us at the church, Christians Against Poverty. I encourage you to spend some time considering what can my involvement with CAP be. We must give generously To missions organizations, Christians must be known for meeting healthcare needs, praying for physical healing, giving to medical missions, responding to international natural disasters and wars where people's lives and very bodies are broken. We must be known for meeting these needs. Christians must be known for setting the captives free getting involved with gospel-centered anti-trafficking organizations. There are millions of humans in slavery around the world right now, and we must be involved in that. And we must be involved in petitioning against wrongful convictions and also freeing those who are constrained, held captive by addiction, by drug addiction, pornography addiction, alcohol addiction, whatever it is. The church must help with freedom. The church must be known standing up for freedom of those who are oppressed and as I was reflecting on this what comes to mind, who are the most oppressed and downtrodden in the world today? It's women and children around the world women are the most vulnerable and oppressed around the world statistically, statistically more likely to be sexually assaulted than anyone else more likely to be trafficked than anyone else Globally, they have the least access to education. They are oppressed in so many areas of society. It's estimated 200 million women alive today have suffered FGM before the age of 15. Millions of babies are killed before they take their first breath. It's an injustice. And the church must be known for standing up against injustice and for the rights of women and children, orphans and widows. It is my heart, Gabrielle and I talk often about how we would love the church around New Zealand to be filled with foster children and adopted children, kids who don't have a hope of living in a home, parents who love them and want the best for them and have a chance of introducing them to Jesus. We're celebrating here recently the street being uh, formally acknowledged by the government to welcome and help refugees resettle in Wellington. This is going to be part of the gospel in action. People have had to flee their their lives because of war or other turmoil. We must be about this. We must be about the gospel in action. This is releasing the Lord's favour and he uses the church. The church is his vehicle of changing the world. Ephesians 3, Paul writes, His intent was now, God's intent was now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sometimes I look at the church and despair. I look at myself and I despair. How could I be part of his plan. And it's because the same spirit that was anointed that anointed Jesus to come and proclaim this good news is the same spirit that raised him from the dead is the same spirit that lives in you and empowers you and empowers me to live out this gospel in material ways. And we are sent We are sent, Jesus said in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so now I sent you. This mission that Jesus was about 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, in Israel, and is now our mission As as Jesus was sent, so we are sent. Look, I know the past years have been difficult. They've been hard for everyone, more difficult for some than others, and we're tired. We're sick of change. There's grief. There's taking stock. Some of us are just trying to keep going day by day. And I know there's pain of change in the way that we're gathering and that we're going through a season of disorientation, and that's okay. At some point, the disorientation will become reorientation and we'll be okay. But we cannot let that hinder our dedication to simply living out the gospel sharing it in our workplace, living it out at home in our neighbourhood, in our city, and meeting the needs here in Wellington, yes, but globally. I think it's time for us to look up and look out and start walking that mission again. And there's a promise there. Isaiah 58 says, if you get this right, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. We live lives of mission and it is light to the world. And it is the glory of God to see the church in action. I want to encourage you this week, as always, we're not asking for outward conformity, we're looking for inward transformation. And so I encourage you, spend some time in Luke 4 this week, this afternoon, today, wherever you watch this, Read through that amazing prophecy and think that was Jesus' mission. It's it's my mission too. And ask God, what are you asking of me? How do you want me to respond? What are some of the needs that I can meet? Ask him to remind you of how urgent the mission is because it is urgent. If you flick back to Isaiah 61, you'll notice something really interesting and we'll close with this. It's what Jesus didn't say. It's where he stopped reading the prophecy. He stopped mid-sentence. The sentence reads, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. Time of the Lord's favour doesn't continue forever. Jesus stopped mid-sentence because he was saying, I'm ushering in that time of the Lord's favour now, but it comes to an end. It doesn't go on forever. We are living in that grace now. We are living in that period of favor now. But there will be a day when Jesus Christ comes back, not as a baby in a manger, but as a conquering king. And then on that day, there will be justice for all. On that day, all things will be made new. And so there is urgency for you. If you don't know him, can I encourage you today, let it be the day. Let it be the day. Christian, can I encourage you? Remember, this time of the Lord's favour doesn't go on forever. It comes to an end. So we must be people who go out and preach the gospel with our words and with our actions in our homes, in our neighbourhoods, in our workplaces, in our cities, across this nation and the world. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6:2: I tell you, now is the time of the Lord's favour. Now is the day of salvation.